Hello, listeners. This is Kara Kandel and Gerard Robinson kicking off one spooky week of shows, one creepy week of shows. We've got, we're all about Halloween. You know, we like to take little detours from education and ed reform, if we're allowed to say that, every now and again. Although that in and of itself can be quite creepy, right, Gerard? But um, we like we like to get a little literary. We like to, you know, so we've got a great guest lined up today to talk to us about um, about some really creepy Halloween stuff and the and the very real history behind it. That's not quite as creepy. But okay, how many times can I say creepy in a podcast? Do you think, Gerard? Should we count? Twenty. Okay, I think I'm halfway there. Um, I wanted to ask you before we get started because we I I have a super creepy story. You've got a nice one. Um, do you? What are you doing? Are your kids still trick or treaters? And like, what is pandemic Halloween look like in the Robinson household? So the girls, the two younger girls, are still trick or treaters. I'm actually looking out of our window now. We've got four pumpkins. Uh, on our uh, stairway, each one of us painted one. So that's part one. Part two, my wife actually purchased uh, signs that show you stand here, the candy will come here, you can pick this up. So we've worked out the distancing. And so that part's going to be fun. And we're still as a family going to go out and trick or treat. Uh, I have a, uh, a Roman uh, outfit that I'll wear. We'll send you a picture uh, yeah, I think there. that one's going on the website for sure. And of course, waiting for someone to say, well, there were no black Romans. So then we'll open up the opportunity <laughs> to talk about uh, a book called Before Color Prejudice and the role of <laughs> black people in, uh, in in society before color prejudice. But that's a whole other story. I so, love it. That's sort of like what we try and do here on this podcast, you know, like we tell you we're talking about Halloween, but we're really going to provoke folks to think about other stuff. Exactly. I love it. I love it. I really do want the picture on the website too, please. So, um, <laughs> so we'll be we'll be advocating for that. You know, I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing that. Trick or treating is canceled in these parts. Um, I, I don't know if it was been it's been formally canceled in a couple of towns, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how it is around oh. you, but like we're we're close enough to sort of like. Um, city living uh, that <laughs> that you we've got like certain neighborhoods where everybody goes to trick or treat like certain streets and they get really 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 congested so a lot of those have been canceled because and when I say congested I mean like it can take you an hour to hit ten houses congested but they're oh, wow. really well decorated and like like. There even the place I used to go in my old neighborhood, there was like houses with bands and adult beverages and stuff. So anyway, that's out this year. But um, I have found myself hosting a fifth grade pod party. Um, so that's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how creepy we can make our our basement and try and keep all of the children outside in what promises to be, you know, a balmy 35 degree evening. So anyway. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll have updates for you. It'll be great. Or or maybe I won't because I'll frozen to death. But <laughs> okay. Even creepier than Ichabod Crane, Gerard, my story of the week <laughs> is one, you know, I don't love to hate, but man, do I love to hate on this story. So, so probably you've seen this, probably some of our listeners have seen this out of the New York Post entitled De Blasio's newest low 
charging public schools to use athletic fields. So this, like, let's just put this in the category of just such extreme stupidity and ridiculousness that it, it's it's de Blasio's like campaign against the success of success academies, right? So basically, the Department of Education is demanding that success academies pays 500K, yes, half a million what? dollars, so that their kids can use taxpayer-funded athletic fields. And so you know and I know that in New York, a lot of charters coexist in shared space with mm-hmm. district schools. Mm-hmm. So the district schools, by the way, don't have to pay. No, 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 no. Just just the, just the success academy kids, just the charter school kids. So the very kids who, you know, we all know who success academy serves. These are kids mm-hmm. that um, you know, are among the the most socioeconomically disadvantaged in the city. Um, they're also, they're doing amazing things at school. They're, you know, who, who doesn't need to get out and run around in the middle of a pandemic? And now about 300 kids are locked out of their fields, according to this article. And so in some of these kids, the article points out, are athletes vying for college scholarships and stuff and now don't have anywhere to practice. Right. And it's not like, I don't know, you know, the last time you lived in a city and didn't have a yard, Gerard, but for me, it wasn't that long ago. And, you know, we, my family has always relied upon public spaces and school spaces mm-hmm. to be able to do that. So mm-hmm. this is just like, I mean, I mean, really, can we please <laughs> get a handle on reality and stop attacking kids for the purposes of politics? It's absolutely disgusting. Anyhow. Is some of the, is the rationale behind this because the city is in a deficit? I mean, is it strictly financial? So the rationale given in the article is that it costs the department a lot to like clean the fields and conduct maintenance because it's like virus related maintenance. But the part of this that doesn't make sense to me and obviously to the editorial board here is that the other kids are using it. So these are the same kids that are te- would technically be sharing a building together. And mm-hmm. also, I'm just also unclear about what is virus-related cleaning and maintenance look like on an athletic field? I mean, it's not like we're sanitizing desks and stuff. And you can, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but when my kids are playing on the soccer field, you know, they're masked, they're, they're taught to not spit right. on each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> among other things. So, like, I, I, it's, it just doesn't quite add up. But, yes, the city, to answer your question, cites the high cost of maintenance. Well, they could take some of the money from defunding the police and give it to the athletic field, if that's the case. Well, well, there you go. Somehow I don't think uh, they're going to give any money to the athletic fields, Gerard, but we'll, we'll float your suggestion with the good mayor there. Yeah, to treat, uh, to treat public school students like second-class citizens. Very interesting. Yeah. My story is less creepy. In fact, it's really good. It's about the 2020 release by the American Federation of Children of its school choice book. Uh, It is one of my go-to books uh, every year. I've had a chance to be affiliated with uh, AFC since its founding and when it was in another iteration of its life. And the reason this is important is twofold. Number one, they provide you state-by-state data on what you need to know about school choice laws across the board. And number two, they also provide really good graphs. And so they're getting people who want to just read Mm -hmm. narrative. And they also have people who want to look at graphs. And they also have something that's interactive online. And I got to tell you, in an environment that's still anti-choice, well, let me take that back. It's not anti-choice for a lot of things (laughs) except for parental choice in school for low-income and working-class people. There you go. (laughs) 
<laughs> but, you know, this is a go-to spot for scholars as well who want to take a look. And yes, people may not like it, but they're really showing the great work they do. And so I want to thank John uh, Schilling and his team on the board who have for, you know, over 10 years uh, have kept the American public literate and at least remotely honest about what's taking place in the state. So I was glad to see that uh, out again. Yeah, it's a it's a good book. And I'll just say shout out to my friend Hallie Faulkner, who is the National Director of Policy at AFC. I think that's her title. She'll tell me if it's not. Um, who I think does the heroic work of putting that report together. And I am with you. The graphics are great. The other thing is that, you know, what's remarkable is what we've seen. You know, they have this one graph in the beginning that shows the growth of private school choice programs mm-hmm. over the past 20 years. And, you know, sometimes when you're in the work, especially it feels like you're just just chugging along and oh, not always getting it to happen. When you look at the fact that we started with, you know, what, like a thousand kids some 25 years ago. I mean, it was a really small number of kids enrolled in private that had that had access to these kinds of opportunities. And mm-hmm. today we're, we're over half a million. And, you know, we want that number, of course, to be much bigger than that. But it but it's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. And I love, to your point, the way that's presented so we can see not only um, how access has grown, but what what kinds of programs are really catching on in the state. So it's amazing stuff. All right. So, okay. Now we, we do have to get back to the creepy Gerard. We've actually got, we've got a really cool guest today. We're going to be speaking with Professor Andrew Bursting, and he is going to be talking to us, um, among many other things about, um, some of the creepy Halloween, uh, works that we are all so familiar with, such as we're going to be talking about the headless horseman and Ichabod Crane and the legend of sleepy hollow. So coming up right after this. And we're back, listeners, with Andrew Bursting. He is the Charles P. Manship Professor of History at Louisiana State University and the author, most recently with Nancy Eisenberg, of The Problem of Democracy, The President's Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. Other titles by Professor Burstein include Democracy's Muse, Lincoln Dreamt He Died, also with Nancy Eisenberg, Madison and Jefferson, written in 2010, a complete biography of literary icon Washington Irving, the original Knickerbocker, Jefferson's Secrets, The Passions of Andrew Jackson, and America's Jubilee, written in 2001. He has taught graduate and undergraduate courses at LSU since 2008 and previously at the University of Tulsa and the University of Northern Iowa. Professor Burstein was a consultant to documentary films, including the 1997 Ken Burns PBS production, Thomas Jefferson, and he has been featured many times on C-SPAN. He received a BA in Oriental Studies from Columbia University, an MA for the Center for Chinese Studies at the University of Michigan, and a PhD in History from the University of Virginia And in all of those places, he has connections to both Learning Curve co-hosts, as we've just been discussing. Professor Burstein, welcome to the Learning Curve. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, we're really, really happy to have you. And 
Of course, um, I mean, we're coming up on a lot of things here, but what is front of what, what is front of mind in my household, at least with three small children is what on earth are we going to do for Halloween in the middle of a pandemic? So, um, but we're, we're really excited to be talking to you at this time of year because some of your work certainly speaks to it. Um, so I want to ask you first about Washington Irving's short stories, legends, and tales. They, they were central in shaping previous generations' understanding of 19th century New York. York and American culture, while his satirical histories by Diedrich Knickerbocker, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, established fictional characters who are elemental to American literature. Can you talk a little bit about writing your biography of Irving and why his writings um, resonate today or should resonate today with 21st century American students? I went to high school in uh, the area near Sleepy Hollow. And so returning to Washington Irving after having written histories of Jeffersonian era political culture was kind of a homecoming for me. Um, Washington Irving came of age politically uh, in the Jeffersonian period and began his career with uh, writing outrageous political satire. Um, Not many people know the the scope of what Washington Irving did in his lifetime, that he was a diplomat in England and in Spain, that he wrote biography, was well regarded as an American historian, um, as well as writing the iconic short stories um, uh, for which he's best known. But um, the last time anyone had written a major biography of Irving was 1935. It was a Yale literary scholar who really hated Irving and tried to diminish him uh, for reasons um, I don't understand. So I didn't write this uh, biography to uh, glorify Irving, but rather since no professional historian had ever written a biography of Irving, and as a native New Yorker, um, he spoke to me in a lot of ways. I just wanted to uh, resuscitate the, the his romance with language and the fact that he was the first American author to make a career, a profession of writing, and the first to enjoy international success writing for a popular audience. And yet, uh, how someone with such a resume as he had could be reduced in historic memory to two short stories um, is is strange. And what, what historians do is to breathe life into the past and to recall what's been lost to historical memory. So, Washington Irving was a big name in in his time in the 19th century. His multi-volume biography of Christopher Columbus uh, went into 175 editions in the 19th and early 20th century and was the most widely uh, owned work of nonfiction in American private libraries, like the home libraries. So the fact that he's only known today for uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow every Halloween uh, is, you know, just it struck me as what we really need to tell Irving's story again. It's time. 
And and that's actually, that really resonates with me because, of course, I can't remember anything but the legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle from, from you know, my own time in school. As a mother of three kids, um, what what is it that you think should resonate with them about Irving's works, if you can tell us really briefly? Other uh, works besides the legend, the works, the works that I'll be reading to them, you know, uh, for Halloween. Well, he's a beautiful writer. And although he dabbles in the Gothic tradition, um, ghost stories, nobody gets killed in spite of what you might have seen if you if, if you watched uh, like Tim Burton's uh, Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp mm-hmm. in the starring role or mm-hmm. the uh, Sleepy Hollow TV series that takes place uh, during the American Revolution. They're gruesome. They're violent. Yeah. And Washington Irving... Uh, well, he invented, I don't think that's too strong a word, uh, the American tradition of Christmas. And he did that through two uh, children-friendly stories, one about St. Nicholas, who we know as Santa Claus. And uh, he gave us the, the, effectively the Santa Claus that uh, children love as a means of finding a holiday in the dead of winter. It was called mm-hmm. St. Nicholas's Eve, and it was uh, December 6th, I believe, uh, before the 25th of December was celebrated. But just as he wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and not intending it to have anything to do with Halloween, but it was children-friendly, and so by the early 20th century, it became connected with this uh, curious holiday. So what Irving wrote was very much geared toward young people, but his romance with American English is so endearing and enduring that he can still be read uh, by people of all ages and appreciated on different levels. Sure, and you can see that in 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 the characters that we think of, especially at this time of year, the the headless horseman and Ichabod Crane, right? <laughs> um, uh, schoolmaster. Is, I want to um, ask you to talk. You said you grew up near Sleepy Hollow. A little bit more about the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the way that Irving used it to shape. American regional history, and especially this creepy ghost storytelling that we also love at this time of year? Well, um, the tale was a reminder to the people of his time. Um, It was first published in 1820 of uh, the American Revolution, which was kind of beginning to fade from view as the veterans uh, of the War for Independence uh, aged and passed away. But it was really a story of the Hessian mercenary who the Hessians had the reputation in the darkest days of the revolution for brutality, for lacking any sort of sense of kindred to the American patriots. And so uh, even though the people of Westchester County of the Hudson were uh, immersed in a, a fight, a struggle against uh, the British, it was the Hessians who were nearby who were the most fearful. And so the uh, the legend 
is of the Hessian whose head was removed by a cannonball. And uh, in the dark of night in the Sleepy Hollow Woods, uh, the, the, you know, he, he supposedly came, came back. So people reading it at the time saw this in their historic memory, not so much as a ghost story, but as the recollection of the feared Hessians and the, the darkest days of the revolution. It was only, it, it took on its modern meaning much, much later because Irving's tales um, were translatable into holidays. They uh, were read in Europe as well as in America. And so the convergence of Irving's tale with the Celtic tradition of warding off ghosts, which is obscure to us, dates to late 19th, early 20th, early 20th century uh, Irish Americans. After waves of Irish immigrated to North America from the mid 19th century to the early 20th century, they brought their tradition of carving turnips and putting a candle inside to you know, help navigate in the dark. And uh, this tradition morphed into the American pumpkin, pumpkin the pumpkin being an Algonquian word. And, uh, in some of uh, Irving's earlier works, he, he uh, writes about uh, Indians in curious ways uh, that also have been forgotten. But he um, very early on wrote uh, a political satire that showed uh, the hypocrisy of white America in treating the Native Americans as somehow inferior when uh, in moral terms, they were at least uh, equal to um, white society. And it was, it was a very risque thing to do at the time. Anyway, so the American pumpkin. And then uh, in the 20th century, that's when Halloween's headless horseman rides into the popular imagination largely shorn of the fear-inspiring history and the revolutionary era violence that uh, makes the tale safe for children. But at the time Irving wrote, uh, it, it wasn't any sort of uh, ecstatic holiday celebration that had in mind. It was the, you know, the beginning of uh, the tradition of telling ghost stories. Um, and his art was in uh, inspiring or twisting history in such a way that um, uh, he educates and at the same time removes fear from the story. You know, because in the end, it turns out that Ichabod is fine. <laughs> and what happens, he goes off to Connecticut and becomes a politician, which is kind of uh, Irving's little joke. Um, and and goes back to his uh, initial literary offerings as a political satirist so that um, one comes down in the world when he becomes a politician. That is so fascinating. Uh, so, Dr. Bernstein, this is Gerard Robinson speaking to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, a place that you know well. Yes, sir. So... You've provided some really good historical information, a uh, number of things that I was unaware of. When we think about Irving, you know, he was admired by British authors like Charles Dickens and Walter Scott. 
He served as a U.S. ambassador to Spain, briefly lived in and wrote about the uh, ancient Spanish palace. And he's also a celebrated biographer of Muhammad, George Washington, and Christopher Columbus. Could you talk about the lessons of the the wider world uh, that Irving brings to American readers in his time and in ours? Irving spent 17 years abroad. He was in England uh, from 1815 uh, to uh, 1820 or 21. And uh, then he lived in Paris, uh, in France, um, spent a couple years in Germany, several years in Spain. He was one of the most widely traveled Americans. And of course, he concluded his career. Uh, this is, he, he, he wrote his Columbus biography in 1828 with original Spanish sources in the Madrid archives, uh, the first English language biography of Columbus. Uh, he's better known today in Spain than he is in America. Now, um, with all of his travels and, and as perhaps the most widely traveled American of his time, um, he got noticed. He got to know a lot of important people, the European nobility, other authors, um, Americans traveling in Europe came to see him. That's how he got to know Henry Wadsworth Longfellow influenced the great American poet uh, when, when, when Longfellow was young. Uh, uh, Charles Dickens credited Irving for inspiring a Christmas carol because Irving's Christmas stories, in addition to his St. Nicholas, his stories of old England that are in the sketchbook, the same, uh, the same text that contains uh, Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow. Dickens said he carried it around, uh, you know, as a pocketbook. He carried it around with him when he traveled. And uh, so, so much that we think of of international culture uh, can be traced directly to Irving, the influence of Irving's tales. Um, uh, the Alhambra, the Moors of uh, the, the lovable losers of past Spanish history. Um, Irving embraced, he, he, he cre- recreated uh, this imaginary world. He was like infused with the, the, the imaginary of uh, Don Quixote in Spain. Irving exaggerated the heroic qualities of Columbus, and he did it in the style of his time. So he's probably half responsible, largely responsible for the whitewash of Columbus's reputation, which for so long prevented Americans from understanding that the historical Columbus had many flaws, that he enslaved Indians, that he saw himself as an instrument of God. Um, uh, That has required modern historians to correct the record, but Irving had a tremendous impact on Americans' understanding of Columbus, uh, of the revolution. Um, He did write a biography of Muhammad, which was probably the least original of the histories that he wrote. And uh, in the final years of his life, he collaborated with uh, one of his nephews in uh, writing a multi-volume biography of the man after whom he was named, the first president of the United States. So um, 
Yeah, Irving was very much uh, an international celebrity. And when he came home to America uh, after 17 years in Europe, um, everybody wanted a piece of him. He was, uh, I mean, he was friends with presidents. Um, he, he took tours with uh, Dutch New Yorker Martin Van Buren, uh, dined with President Andrew Jackson. And uh, so he's uh, kind of on the forefront of, of every major cultural transition taking place in America from Jeffersonian times till almost the Civil War. This is a man who is truly a Renaissance man in ways that we often overlook today. And you mentioned some of the people who he studied or learned from. You know, here's, here's another question. You know, we're in an election season and you've written a number of biographies about some of America's most celebrated and controversial presidents, uh, including the two Adams. And when I think of the father, Ab Adams, uh, at one point, he was one of the more well-traveled people of his time. Same with Jefferson. Uh, you've also written about Madison and Jackson. Could you talk about how the American presidency has turned into a cult of personality and whether this was the founding father's original vision for its country's chief executive? It was a great fear of the presidents, Adams, John and John Quincy. Um, they saw first the cult of personality surrounding Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. And uh, it concerned uh, first John Adams, the idea that, and he wrote extensively about this, uh, at a time when the idea of democracy was being glorified by the Jeffersonians. Uh, he was the naysayer who looks really good today in retrospect because he focused on the power of image over merit, the power uh, of men over balanced lawful institutions of government. He saw what we see, the psychological effects of celebrity, of nepotism, of inherited wealth and power, which go against America's uh, stated ideal, the founders' ideals. The founders uh, collectively regarded personality as an illegitimate political force and a psychologically manipulative tool, something artificial. Um, but Adams was the, the most forceful in, in, in worrying about how demagogues could stimulate the malleable minds of vulnerable citizens uh, who, if they were not well enough educated, um, would vote for a fantasy candidate rather than understand, um, uh, you know, who is acting in their best interest. Um, just the force of personality should not drive a democracy. And, and that's why America is, is something less than a democracy today. I mean, it's a lovely myth, but there's always been, and I'm speaking in Adamsian terms, there's always been a quest for power not a lust for power. There's always some force, some group, some individual that will always privilege their interest over the majority interest. And so that's why America, uh, why democracy is really hard um, to reach. And the best that our system of government can do, um, thinking of the founders on their best day, 
because they were obviously flawed as well, we know. They didn't even anticipate. The Constitution says nothing about organized political parties. So they didn't, they, they weren't profit. But, but, but the best our system of government uh, can, can do, can be, is to remedy the excesses. And that's what Adams, that's what um, the, the, these you know, rational founders were, were arguing for, to work toward lifting up or at least representing the up, uh, underrepresented. Um, it wasn't full-fledged democracy. They did not desire full-fledged democracy. The election of the president is so convoluted, the electoral college, because they were afraid of democracy. They coined the, the term that's still in vogue, mobocracy, the rule of the mob. They feared too much democracy, but, um, uh, but they did believe in the educability of the American citizenry. And so if the cult of personality has always been with us, or the cult of celebrity has always been with us, I mean, Ronald Reagan was a professional actor um, who translated his ability to reach people, his, you know, his personality, uh, his eloquent speaking. You know, if you're a, if, in our time, it's so visual. They read about people in the newspapers. They read, uh, you know, Jefferson was known for his writing, not for his speaking. And paintings that people saw were largely a reflection of the artist or how the artist saw, saw one of our founding fathers. But today, everything is direct, everything is visual, everything is instantaneous. And so, the tendency uh, for someone who has this kind of charismatic presence to uh, wrap up votes, regardless of what their political stance is, um, dictates against the, the, the democratic principles that we'd like to believe are realizable. So we have work to do yet. Yes, we do. And after the election uh, next week, uh, we'll see exactly how much work in particular. Would you mind reading a passage uh, that you think is pertinent to the time that we're in right now? All right. Um, this is uh, from uh, my Irving biography, and uh, because we're on uh, nearly Halloween Eve, mm -hmm. the the epigraph before The Legend of Sleepy Hollow consists of four lines from Scottish poet James Thompson's 1748 work, The Castle of Indolence. A pleasing land of drowsy head it was, of dreams that waved before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass forever flushing round a summer sky. Thompson's poem speaks to Irving's partiality for malleable nature lazy times, pastoral slumbers, and enchantment. It opens with a wizard. But just before the lines Irving quotes are two that conjure another more sinister picture. A stable, silent, solemn forest stood where naught but shadowy forms were seen to move. These woodlands sent forth a sleepy horror through the blood. No wonder Irving sampled Thompson's poem to set the stage for his post-revolutionary adventure of the hapless Ichabod Crane, 
all he had to do was to make one of his drowsy heads headless. And very appropriately creepy, making one of his drowsy heads headless. I love it. And um, taking that with us into this into this next weekend when we all like things a little bit creepy, a little bit spooky, but how much fun to learn about um, about what was behind it all. So thank you so much, Professor Burstein, for spending this time with us on The Learning Curve. Enjoyed it thoroughly. And um, we hope to talk to you again soon. Well, I enjoyed your question. Take care. Take care. As always, listeners, and before Halloween, we are back with the Learning Curve Tweet of the Week. This one from Perry Stein, Washington Post reporter covering D.C. education and schools. And the tweet is, D.C. public schools released some important data today on the impact of virtual learning on students. For K-2 students, 9 percentage point drop in students meeting literacy benchmark, 22-point drop for kindergartners meeting, meeting these benchmarks. So this is, this is tough. It's, I have to say it's not unexpected. I bet you it's not unique to DC. And we know DC is a place that has made such progress, such gains, especially for young kids. But man, in this moment, I mean, I gotta tell you personally, as a mom of a, um, a, a kindergartner in the spring, now a first grader, I was worried about all my kids, but boy, was I really worried about this little guy and his emergent literacy. So I think that what Perry Stein is tweeting about here is something that probably all parents, all teachers are really worried about. It's enough to scare you quite a bit. What do you think, Gerard? So is Perry saying that because of virtual learning, there's the drop, is he saying in absence? I mean, in absence of virtual learning, will we have had the drop? Mm Just trying to figure I, out. I think that I think it's I think it's unclear what we're talking about is that students just aren't even meeting literacy benchmarks at all. So that's where oh, the in, independent of the yeah, yeah. Wow. It's the impact of pandemic one can assume, but not even meeting benchmarks, probably because of learning lost, you know, throughout the spring, throughout the summer, and now with school looking spottier. Let let's be clear. No matter no matter how you're doing it, it's looking spottier than it was before. So yeah, as you know, I used to work for D.C. public schools uh, in the late 1990s, and uh, yet these numbers aren't great. Uh, could be worse, uh, but the good thing is, given the demographic of the city, uh, some would think that the numbers would be higher. Not great, but uh, with, the, with the leadership they have and the public and private partners, I'm sure that we will find a way to address this. But no, it's not good. And thanks for clarifying for me uh, where Perry's going, because I was just trying to figure is it blaming or pointing or just acknowledging? No, I think it's just like, man, think about this, you know. And, and you know, I would like to say the one other thing is thinking about who knows what next week is going to bring. Um, either way, uh, no matter <laughs> which administration we have, D.C. is in the hands of the federal government, right? And so, like, we need this. We've been waiting for something <laughs> to come down to help schools. And um, one would hope that that. Um, whoever, whatever administration is in office come January, uh, we will have some money going to the kids that need it for this kind of learning recovery. That's, uh, at least that's my hope. I don't know where you're at. By well, 
And speaking of scary and creepy, we shall see after this week's election. Yeah. I wasn't going to go there, but you said it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, don't, I can't oh, even Oh, so the headless like, horseman. I mean, there's so many ways we could take this. There, there are. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> you know what? Good thing is we've got another show coming up this week. Yes, that's right, listeners. Don't get too excited. We've got a Halloween double whammy. Gerard and Kara working overtime this for Pioneer Institute. But mm-hmm. we're going to be talking next. Um, you'll you'll hear us in a couple days talking to Stacey Schiff. The Pulitzer Prize winner is the author most recently of The Witches, Salem, 1692. Salem, also closed for Halloween this year, but we're going to bring it to you here. So until then, Gerard, I will, well, not until then, it's it's really close, until Wednesday. I'll talk to you soon. Boo. <laughs> <laughs>